You can open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to look at the first six verses of the chapter. And uh, as we begin, I do want to tell you about a class that I had when I was in high school. I'm not sure if uh, many of you remember specific classes that you had in high school, but I remember this class I took. It was uh, called Humanities. And in Humanities, you study ancient Roman literature, ancient Greek literature, that that really sets the stage historically as a background for our, our nation. And I remember distinctly, there was one time when a, a, our teacher, Mr. Locasio, went, went like this. He put this before us and he said, this is not a chair. And we're like, what are you talking about? It sure looks like a chair. Sure feels like a chair. I sure can sit in it like a chair. What are you talking about? And then we were studying Plato's Republic. And so maybe you understand what was happening at the time. He was, he was placing the ideal community and then placing the reality. And what he said is, is basically this, is that this is not really a chair. Actually, it's a representation of an ideal chair that either you have in mind or exists somewhere in heaven. This is a chair because it exhibits chairness. Okay? Does that make sense? Well, let's try it this way a little bit. Now, this is Plato. This is, this is secular philosophy, okay? So if you kids want to major in philosophy, you can talk about these things. But, like, there's some, there's some measure of truth to this. We were at the dinner table this past week, and um, somehow we got talking about boys and girls. And so David, our little three-year-old, we kind of went around the table, and I said, David, are you a boy or a girl? And he said, I'm a boy. And so I said, what about mommy? Is mommy a boy or a girl? A girl. What about daddy? Is, is a boy or a girl? Boy. And we just went right down. Carissa, girl. SR, boy. Hannah, girl. Stephanie, girl. And I'm thinking, how, how does he know this? I'm not sure totally how he knows this. Plato would say, though, that there's this ideal picture of a boy and a girl category in his mind, and he just matches patterns and comes up with one or the other, however, however it is. Well, when we come to our text this morning, I bring those things up because we are going to see the same sort of concepts. We're going to see the ideal in heaven and the representation on earth which is imperfect. I want to read our text this morning. I want you to look for those things. What's the ideal in heaven and what's the mere representation of the ideal? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises." I trust you see the ideal here. The ideal is the true tabernacle in heaven where Jesus is seated. And in verse 2, the author even identifies this as the true tabernacle. 
It's not that the tabernacle on earth was false. Rather, that was the genuine and the, the one on the earth was the mere representation of it that Moses built. In fact, Moses identifies the one on earth as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And should you bring Mr. Plato in here this morning to say, how would you understand this? He had identified the earthly temple that stood on Mount Moriah as the approximate representation of the ideal temple that exists elsewhere. He would say the temple has this quality of templeness about it. And he'd be exactly right. The earthly temple, which was the center of Jewish worship, was in every way really a representation of the ideal temple, which was the true temple or the true tabernacle. Several times in this epistle, even this same concept is going to be brought up. Look over in chapter 9, verse 11. It talks about Christ appearing on earth. But Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. When He did this, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You see, even the, the, the tabernacle that Jesus ultimately entered as our high priest isn't the earthly tabernacle of this creation. Rather, it's God's holy place of God's creation. In fact, it even says it there in verse 9, it's not made with hands. It's not of this creation where Jesus entered. It, it, it's, it's His own. It's the holy place. Not through the veil in Jerusalem, but into the holy place in heaven. And look down at chapter 9, verse 23. It says the same thing. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens, that is, the, the tabernacle and uh, the altar and the temple and all those sorts of things, the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, that is, blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In other words, the priestly role of Jesus isn't upon earth in an earthly tabernacle. Rather, the priestly role of Jesus is in heaven in the very presence of God Himself. That's why my message this morning is entitled, Our Heavenly High Priest. Because that's what we're talking about today, our heavenly high priest. Now, before we dig into these verses, I do want to set before you my main application for us. Oftentimes, we can think about heaven only in future terms, right? We, we think about the day that, that someday we will be in heaven or, or, or the place that those loved ones who have believed in Christ will go someday. We, we think about heaven as, as that place which will make all things right someday, somehow. We think about some, some final state, somewhere beyond the rainbow is how we think of heaven. And those things are right, and we should have a hope like this. We should anticipate the future. Or as Peter said, right, we suffer now and we glory later. But, I want you to see even from this text, that heaven is a very present reality today. As sure as Jesus is alive today, there is a place called heaven where Jesus is and where He's ministering to His people. He's exalted to the right hand of God who's in heaven. He's a high priest who now prays for us. And I'm calling you all this morning to think of our, our heavenly high priest and His role and what He does. Paul said it this way, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He said, set your minds on the things above not on things that are on earth. 
And, and that's really what I want you to do this morning. As, as you think about, think about life, I want you to set your minds on the things above. You know, there's so much of this earth that we think about. We think about the affairs of life. We think about the activities of life. We have worries. We, we worry about our finances and our, our children and our relationships and our future and our retirement and all those sorts of things. And globally, we think about the, the oil spill in the Gulf. And we think about the flooding in Tennessee. And we think about health care and the taxes that are going to rise and the care level that's going to go down. And we think about the global threat of Iraq and Iran and China. And these are good concerns. Okay to think upon them. But there's, there's a greater place we need to put our efforts. We need to realize that, that, that there's more to life than just this earthly, tangible things that we have here. There's a spiritual realm. And Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And, and I, my, my aim of this message this morning is really to help transport us not away from the earthly and away from the physical into the spiritual and into the heavenly where Jesus Christ serves as our heavenly high priest. I think that, that's the overall message, the overall application to our text. So let, let's look here. Verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, as a preacher, I love verses like this. All right? And the reason is because each week as I teach the Scriptures, one of the things that my aim is to do is to discern the original intent of the author and speak that forth. I mean, there are several reasons for this, but first and foremost, beyond that, is I believe that such a method will have the greatest impact to your soul as I speak the message of the Word of God, the Spirit of God will use that into your own souls. And when I come across a text like this, I'm comforted that I'm getting it right, right? And that the Holy Spirit will move amongst us when it says, now the main point in what has been said is this, we have a high priest. I've been pounding that the last several weeks. We've got this high priest. And today we're going to talk about it even more. We have this high priest in heaven. Now when you read the commentaries, there's this big discussion about the main point. Are these words referring to what came before, like in chapter 7, or are they talking about what's coming afterwards? And even the NIV and the ESV translates it a little bit differently when it says, now the point of what we are saying is this. The point of what we are saying, right? We do have a high priest, right? It's almost anticipating the future. The NAS, the point of what has been said is more of a, a past thing. And so does it work? Does uh, verse 1 look backwards, or does verse 1 look forwards? I say yes. It's both. Because the subject doesn't change. He's right in the middle of talking about the high priest. He's talking about that in verse seven, chapter 7. He's talking about that in chapter 8. What's been said is going to be said some more. In chapter 7, we find example after example after example of the priesthood of Jesus. And how much better it is than the priesthood of Levi. He's a perfect priest. None of the Levites were. He's a kingly priest. None of the Levites were kingly. His life is worthy based upon His indestructible life. But none of the Levites were like that. The priesthood of Jesus brings a better hope because it has an oath that stands forever. Jesus is a pure priest. He's a final priest. He's a perfect priest. All those things were in chapter 7. And now when we get to 8, we're going to continue on in these things. But the emphasis in 8 is going to change a little bit. We're going to change from earth. If you think about all those things that I just said in chapter 7, they're all about His earthly role. Now we're going to look more at His 
heavenly ministry of Jesus. And the main premise is the heavenly priest Jesus is better than any of the earthly priests because His priesthood is the ideal from which the representations derive the ministry of the Levites. Well, let's dig into my first point. Here it is. First point, His place of ministry. Obviously, His place is in heaven. right? Verses 1 and 2. The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not men. There it is. In heaven is where he's a priesthood. And you can almost read these verses and you, and you see it. You see, you see the throne of God there and you see Jesus sit at the right hand of God the Father, seated in glory together. And that's where they will be throughout all eternity. Father and Son worshipped together. Revelation chapter 5 says, and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. They sang, they heard saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the elders bowed down and worshipped. Who are they worshipping? To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Just right there up in heaven is where they will be forever. God will be in the Trinity. And that's the scene of verse 1. It's awaiting that final day when God and the Lamb are worshipped in full glory for creation to see. But until that day, verse 1 is anticipating that, until that day, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty in heaven, in the heavens. Jesus is waiting until His enemies be made His footstool. And verse 1 is calling us back to Psalm 110, which was much the topic back in chapter 7. Verse 1 of Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's where Jesus is today. Jesus is today in heaven. He's seated. He's waiting. He's waiting for the time when He will return as the ruler of the world. Four times in the book of Hebrews this fact is mentioned. Chapter 1, verse 3. You can turn back there if you want. Speaks about Jesus when He had made purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Chapter 10, verse 12 says the same thing. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. Chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. You say, why, why is this mentioned so many times in the book of Hebrews? Well, I think the key to that is to think about the original context of the letter. It's written to those who had left Judaism, had seen and were intrigued in this Messiah. Some believed, some were just interested and were here. And, and these Jewish people were calling them back, hey, come back! Look what we have. And they were trying to argue back every way. We've got the prophets, right? The angels are, are on our side. We have Moses who directed us in the wilderness. We have Joshua who gave us the land of Canaan. We have the Sabbath rest. We have the temple and the priests and the sacrifices and the festivals. We have Abraham. But what about this Jesus? He's nothing. He was killed for His teachings. He's not around. And what did He leave you? He left you with nothing. All you have is memories. And see, they're trying to argue that we got all this stuff. 
and Jesus has gone away someplace. Of course, you know the argument of the book that Jesus is better, so press on. So every single one of those arguments that they might put up, he could press against them. His word was final, unlike the prophets who spoke in many portions in many ways. Jesus is better than the angels because He was worshipped by the angels. He's better than Moses because He received more glory than Moses. He's better than Joshua because He gave us the true eternal rest. He's better than the priest because He Himself is the perfect high priest. His promise is anything, everything better than anything given to Abraham. It may only appear that Jesus left us, but what has He done? He's gone and taken His seat at the right hand in heaven as vice-regent of the universe. And in heaven, He ministers to us as our high priest. And right here really is the key to why the author of Hebrews mentions that Jesus is at the right hand of God because there's substance in our faith. Oh, it may not be here on the earth, but it's a reality. John MacArthur puts it this way, they did not need to fear losing out on what was going on in the symbolic, temporary Holy of Holies. They had the true, perfect, eternal priest in the real, heavenly Holy of Holies of which the earthly one was only a poor and soon-passing picture. In the real one, Jesus Christ was ministering and interceding for them. Thus, the crowning argument for the superior priesthood of Jesus Christ is His exaltation into heaven to sit at the Father's right hand, the place of honor, mercy, and intercession. In other words, they, have, they had a true, real priest. But He's in heaven. He's not on earth. He's not visible to us. But that's where Jesus is. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now, notice where Jesus is sitting in this text. He's a minister in the sanctuary. There He is seated on the throne in the sanctuary. It's not that Jesus is on this throne off someplace. It's He's very within the temple Himself. It means that in the temple, in heaven, there's a throne. Isaiah chapter 6, you remember when Isaiah saw the the vision of God sitting upon the throne? He says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne lofty and exalted the train of His robe, filling the temple. There you have a, a throne in the temple, which is a little bit different than the earthly tabernacle. To be sure, there was a temple upon the earth, but it had no throne. The true throne, the true temple in heaven, is where the throne of God is. Here on earth, at least in America anyway, there's a separation between church and state. Church doesn't tell the state what to do. State doesn't tell the church what to do. Should should work like that in some measure. It's protection for us so the state doesn't govern us and we can be free to do whatever we want. But in heaven it's different. There's a throne in heaven because God is sovereign over all. He'll be worshipped and He'll rule from His throne. No separation of church and state in heaven because that's where Christ is. He's in the temple. Now, I hope you don't get the idea that Jesus is idle in the temple. When Jesus is seated, sure, His his earthly work was finished, but He's not sitting there in a beach chair sipping lemonade underneath an umbrella. He's he's working. He's serving. Yes, He's seated. Yes, He's he's waiting. Yes, His sacrificial work is done, but He's not idle. It says here that He is a a minister in the sanctuary. Verse 2. Literally, that means that He is a, a people worker. The ministry of Jesus is continuing in heaven. And you know what He's doing there, right? What's Jesus doing in heaven right now? What's He doing? He's interceding for us. He's praying for us right now. Hebrews 7, verse 25, Therefore, He is able also to save forever 
those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. And a few weeks ago, we just, we just took that phrase and really reflected upon this. I preached on John 17, right? The high priestly prayer. What is it that Jesus prays for? He's praying for us. God, God, may You protect them. May You sanctify them. May You unify them. May they be with Me. That's what He's praying. And I say that should be a comfort to our hearts today that we have a high, heavenly high priest who's praying for us. That's His ministry. It's people work. Well, my second point comes in verse 3 and 4. I'm calling it His gift of ministry. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary this high priest also has something to offer. The function of priests is to minister to God on behalf of men. In doing so, a priest offers gifts and he offers sacrifices. I mean, it's plain evident to anyone who reads the Old Testament, when you come to God, you need to bring your gift. As Exodus 34 verse 20 says, "None shall appear before me empty-handed." We come to God, we give. Not because He's poor and needy, but because we're coming to a superior. It's an acknowledgement of how great God is and really how small we are. Should you come before the President of the United States? It's appropriate to give a gift. Not, not because He needs anything, but just honor for the position. And so likely with God. As a priest comes before God on our behalf, they offer up gifts and sacrifices to the Lord. Because He is so high and we are so low. In Hebrews 5.1 it says the same thing. Every high priest is taken from among men, is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And that's what a priest does. Now, a priest might bring a bull or a goat or a lamb or a calf or a heifer or a pigeon or a turtle dove or a grain offering even. But the point is clear, right? Verse 3, if Jesus is going to be a priest, He needs to have a gift to offer. And did Jesus have a gift to offer? He did, right? What did He have to offer? He offered Himself. Now, it doesn't say that here in verse 3, but it says that in chapter 7, verse 27. Jesus does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this He did once for all, when He offered up His own gift, right? He offered up Himself. Jesus didn't offer up the blood of bulls and goats, which by, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, is impossible to take away sins. Rather, He offered up His own body on the cross for our sins. I'm calling this His gift of ministry, right? His gift of ministry was Himself. He gave Himself entirely. And that's the glory of the Gospel, right? Jesus Christ, Hebrews 2.14 gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. In 1 Timothy 2.6, Jesus Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all. Jesus, who was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, became guilty, defiled, and sinful like us, so that we might become holy, pure, and innocent like Him. To paraphrase 2 Corinthians 5.21, we simply believe in Christ and these things are ours because He gave Himself for us and for our sins. That's incredibly good news. Sure, we don't have an earthly high priest, but we have a priest in heaven who is better. 
Think about how good this is. Today when we come to God, we're not required to come like those of the Old Testament always have to bring their goats or their bulls, their gifts or their sacrifices. Rather, when we come to God in faith, we have something better. We have Jesus. Now, the imagery is going to break down here, but it's almost as every time we come to God, we have Jesus as a gift that we give back to God. No, not, not really. Jesus gave Himself to us, but He gave Himself to us so that we use Him in accessing God. Reclaiming His merits, not the merits of this pure goat or this pure lamb. Claiming Jesus and He accepts us. And so I just, all of us, let's come to Him. Let's go to Him on His merits. You'll find Him merciful and gracious and willing to help. Well, verse 3 is the similarity of Jesus with the high priest. And then verse 4 is the, the differences. It says, If He were on earth, He would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. And the simple point here is that Jesus didn't qualify as an earthly priest according to law. First of all, He wasn't a Levite. Anyone who serves a priest had to trace back their lineage back to Levi. Jesus couldn't. Also, they offered the gifts according to the law. Jesus didn't do that. Furthermore, Jesus never claimed to be a priest on earth, never attempted to offer sacrifices, but He is a priest because His priesthood, His realm, is different. It's not on the earthly realm. Jesus' priesthood is of a different order, right? Remember in chapter 7, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the base of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? It's because Jesus has a different priesthood. It's, a, it's an eternal priesthood. It's a heavenly priesthood that Jesus has. A thousand years before Jesus came on the scene, David spoke of the Messiah who would be from the kingly line. He said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There it is. You know, a few weeks ago I mentioned that Hebrews is the only book in all the New Testament that mentions Jesus as a priest. Have you ever thought about why that is? Why didn't Paul mention that? Why didn't John mention that? I think the key is, is that most of the New Testament focuses upon the earthly ministry of Jesus. The Gospels tell of His earthly ministry. The epistles interpret His life here upon earth. Very little in the New Testament is mentioned about His current life in heaven. But, but when it is mentioned, as Hebrews mentions a lot, it naturally falls that He is a priest. And that's why His priesthood comes up here. Well, point one, His place of ministry. Point two, His gift of ministry. And now verse, verse 5, my third point, His things of ministry. Right? That's like a bad point. If I was in a preaching class and someone critiquing my sermon, they said, that's a terrible point, Steve. You need to change it. Well, I tried to change it. All right? I, I thought about it, working on it, racking my brain, Talked with Yvonne about it, pulled out my thesaurus, looking at it, trying to, and things is the best I can do, alright? Hopefully, if I read verse 5, you'll be able to see why I did, why I said it this way. Verse 5, who serve a copy, talking about the earthly priests, the earthly priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. There it is. Things, get it? Right? The earthly priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God, when he's about to wreck the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. 
In verse 5, we're talking about the priests of the Old Testament. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. But Jesus ministers in and among the heavenly things. His ministered is centered in heaven. That's where I get my point, things, right? His things of ministry. Just I'm talking about the, the heavenly nature of, of Jesus and His ministry. And this is where the, the Plato kind of philosophy comes in a little bit. Because Jesus was, was, is ministering among the, the reality of all the things that on earth are mere copies of that. And what's amazing here is that Moses, according here at the end of verse 5, made things exactly according to the pattern which God showed him on the mountain. Right? You can picture Moses there in Exodus like 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29. He's up there on the mountain and he's, he's face to face with God and God is presenting with him these divine blueprints of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the table of showbread and the lampstand and the laver and the altar and all these things. And Moses is told, as it says here, quoted from Exodus 25, verse 40, make all things according to the pattern which are shown on the mountain. Several other times in Exodus and once in Numbers, a similar kind of thing. Exodus 26, verse 30, you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan which you have been shown in the mountain. Exodus 27, verse 8, You shall make the altar hollow with planks. As it was shown to you on the mountain, so shall you make it. So Moses was to make a copy of what he was shown. But here, as I put on the children's notes, is the million dollar question. To what extent do the earthly things represent the heavenly things? I think Moses was probably excellent in copying the blueprints he received on the mountains. And so the question is, the blueprints on the mountains, how close were they to the heavenly things? Now we know that there was some discontinuity because he didn't tell them to build a throne in the temple. And there were some things here. He calls them copies and shadows. So they're not exact representation of that. But but there is some parallel. In fact, I was thinking about what, what do we know about heaven and even heaven now? What, what, what do we know about these sorts of things in heaven? And so I pulled out my concordance and started looking at the book of Revelation. And there are several references to the temple in heaven, which will eventually in the New Jerusalem be replaced by God Himself where there's no temple. But Revelation speaks of a temple being in heaven. Revelation has several references to the altar that exists in heaven. In Revelation 11, verse 19, even the Ark of the Covenant appears in the temple in heaven. We read of lampstands, though they're symbolic of the church. We read of golden bowls of incense, though these are the prayers of the saints. Now, we don't know anything about the size or dimensions of these things in heaven, but at least John could see them and interpreted them correctly. So, what he knew from the copy of Moses, he saw some resemblance there. But in the end, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how close the approximation is. What matters, though, is this whole concept that the things on earth are just shadows. the representations of the original reality. The temple and everything, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the altar, that all existed in heaven before even Moses. Moses just built on what existed before. It just shows you the greatness of the ministry of Christ in heaven. And the original is always better than the copy, Right? Take a photocopier. Try copying a sheet of paper. A nice picture. 
And uh, the original looks better every time. I used to work in a hospital and I, I mixed with the folks in the radiology departments. I supported their computers. And there were times when x-rays needed to be sent to the doctor's office. And can you believe it? The picky orthopedic surgeons over there in the, uh, the office of, um, of whom my dad was one of them refused to take copies. <laughs> this isn't going to work. I need an original. And they had this, this spat back and forth between the, the orthopedic surgeons and the, the radiology staff because the, the manager didn't want to release the originals. This was before digital radiography came in, which is now you can just print another original. That'd be okay. But, but this was back then, and, and they were just kind of an argument. Finally, the, the manager just kind of basically said, okay, you want the original? Take the original. If it gets lost, it gets lost. I mean, he was nearing retirement, so that's what he did anyway. So. <laughs> but here, here's the thing, right? It's the, the, the original's always better. And with the ministry of Jesus is better because Jesus ministers in the real temple with the real altar in the real presence of God. And those Jews, I think, were being told that they need to come back to the temple, the priests and the sacrifice and the festivals. What did they need? They needed to know that the things that they were tempted to come back to, everything they'd known from their childhood up, those were just copies and shadows of the reality. And we own the reality. It's just Jesus in the heavens. And when you realize the greatness of His ministry, you'll never have a temptation to go back on the lesser. Well, here's my fourth and final point. We've seen His place of ministry, the gift of ministry, His things of ministry. And now verse 6, His more excellent ministry. But now, verse 6, He has obtained a more excellent ministry. By as much as He is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. This verse here is really the hinge of chapter 8. It's really, if you catch this, the hinge of the whole book of Hebrews. It's, it's sort of a, of a transition statement that is going to change what he's talking about. Until this point, the focus has been upon the person of Jesus and now He's better than all these people, better than, than Moses and the prophets and Joshua and Abraham and Aaron and the Levites. But, but right here, it's going to change to be not Jesus is better than the people, but the ministry of Jesus is better than anything done in the Old Testament. We're going to start talking about His sanctuaries. We're going to talk about His sacrifice. We're going to talk about the tabernacle there of how it was and how much better it is. It's, it's, all, it's all hinging right here. The more excellent ministry that's described here in verse 6 is His ministry, as it says, of mediation. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry. By the way, that word ministry ties us back to verse 2 where it says He's a minister in the sanctuary. His praying ministry is much better as, by as much as He is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. And uh, you know, I've intentionally taken this passage slow because I want the second half of the passage to shine through. I'm super excited about the message next week. We talk about the glories of the New Testament. It was promised to Israel and it comes to us. And these promises are great. But I sort of slowed down today. But, but look at verse 6. The more excellent ministry is the fact that He's a mediator of this better covenant, of this new covenant. Now, a mediator is one who stands in the middle of two parties and brings them together. That's what a mediator is. 
And fundamentally, that's the ministry of a priest. A priest brings people to God. He does whatever is necessary on behalf of the people for God so as to bring us there to God. In the Old Covenant, it meant bringing sacrifices and offering them up in smoke to the Lord. But in the New Covenant, this is all changed because Jesus now, now brings us to God on the base of His own blood and thereby mediating our way to God. Now, the fact of Jesus being a mediator is mentioned several times in Hebrews as well. It's going to come up in chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant. You say, for, for what reason? Well, it's the reason of His death. He's become the, the bridge which spans the chasm. He, he's become the, the highway which brings us to the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 24, when it speaks about the glorious city of Zion and what we're coming to, it says that we've come to Jesus who is the mediator of a new covenant. And the ways of a new covenant are much better than the ways of the old. The ways of the new covenant has, has one mediator. As it says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. The Levitical priesthood was good and useful during its time and season, but the ministry of Jesus is way better. I just have two reasons why. First of all, it's way better because God is the one doing the mediating. It's not another human priest. It's not even an angel. It is God Himself who mediates. You know, Businessmen know the difference between a cold call and a call which comes with a reference. Right, Andy, you know a little bit of difference between that? Right, you cold call and who's Andy Krause? But if Andy can say, hey, I know Joe Johnson and he told me to give you a call. It's like, oh, instant credibility there. And you, 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 can, you can get in a little bit better because you've got some leverage. There, there's some recommendation there. And there's a huge difference when Jesus is our mediator because He as God's Son has the mediator, has the ear of His Father much more than any human can have. One way in which his mediatorship is better. Second, I think about how the, the mediation of the new covenant is done at the heart level. It's not merely external. Look at verse 10, which we'll look at more next week. But, but verse 10 says this, This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We'll get into this more next week, but here's, here's the taste of the difference between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. The New Covenant was mere externals. The Old Covenant just, just dealt with externals on the outside, but the New Covenant brings mediation into the heart. I mean, time and time again, the book of Hebrews talks about the change of conscience that comes in the New Covenant wrought by Jesus, right? Chapter 9, verse 9. Gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of, reforma of reformation. Gifts and sacrifices can't cleanse the conscience. But Jesus can. Look what it says in verse 13. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer are sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, just external, old covenant, that's what it is, 
But this better covenant that we have that Jesus mediates in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will He cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's the new covenant. He's going to cleanse our consciences. We, we no longer have to come to God with a, a shady comfort, conscience. We can come to God with a pure conscience because Jesus has done that as our mediator. For this reason, it says in verse 15, He is the mediator of a new covenant. He redeemed those of the old covenant, is what it says in the end of verse 15, and brought us near to Christ. Well, I want to close this morning by looking at Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> It really comes back to my aim of my message this morning is to take us into heaven to think about the realities. We're going we're gonna to even see here about how we need to come near to Christ in the new covenant. He says, verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's really the application of my text this morning. Since we have such a heavenly priest, since we have this way to enter the holy place, since we have this mediator, since we have this path to God, let us, as it says, draw near with a sincere heart because the new covenant has done that for us. It's washed us. It's cleansed us. It's made us clean. Let us draw near in full assurance of faith, right? Not doubting, but believing that Jesus is indeed the one. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promises faithful, right? We don't need to go back to the old ways. What we have is better than anything else they had. And let us consider, verse 24, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It's a task for you after church here this morning. To stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking your own assembling, as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right There's the great application. We've got a, a heavenly high priest who is reality. This, this is on earth. I mean, this is real. This pulpit is real. This microphone is real. Flesh is real. But we have a greater reality, which is a perfect reality. Let's draw near to Him. Right? Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for our great High Priest who offered His blood and died. And as Isaac Watts wrote so long ago, my guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone and now it pleads before the throne. And now it pleads before the throne. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that we would see that reality that we would seek Jesus, that we would see that He is right now in the heavens interceding for us. He's a real person. He is God Himself in heaven interceding and praying for us now. Help us, O Lord, to see His sufficiency and draw near to Him in full assurance of faith. And for those this morning who are doubting, I pray You give 
give great assurance, great confidence in their faith. And for those of us who believe and are secure, I, I pray you just continue to, to rock solid cement that in our minds. As the argument has come over and over, Jesus is better. Lord, may we be convinced of those things in greater and greater ways. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.